Well, today we come to the final message in a series I've entitled Cultural Creeds. It's been a series where we've looked at some of the catchphrases of modern culture that summarize, if you will, their belief system, their, their uh, cultural religion, and, and uh, their attempts to, to impose that and to catechize uh, people in that. And, and we've been comparing many of those little catchphrases to God's Word and seeing how they, they stack up compared to His truth with the goal of building our discernment to understand what some of these sayings are actually claiming and to bolster our courage to respond to them with the clarity of Scripture. And certainly it takes courage in the modern era where many of these uh, sort of creeds are framed in a, a sense of, of uh, casting shame on those who may, not, who may not embrace them. And so we have been trying to deal with them carefully, as carefully as we can, but also, as I said, Clearly, and so we've already dealt with five of these. Love is love. Live your truth. My body, my choice. No human is illegal. Last uh, week we looked at trans rights or human rights. Truth is we could go on for weeks uh, talking about many other issues, similar issues, but my goal is not to address uh, every claim of the culture exhaustively in this little series, but simply to demonstrate how simplistic some of these sayings are when they are attempting to address the complex issues of life. How shallow they are on the uh, simple basis that they approach these things from a materialistic worldview and thus don't really have the answers that they're claiming to offer. God's Word is that source from which we have the comprehensive answers of life. And any answer that's not grounded in that is going to inevitably fall short. Well, today we we come to what is perhaps the most confusing and certainly the most divisive of any of these cultural creeds that we've discussed so far. It's the motto, Black Lives Matter. It is one of the most divisive phrases, not only in our culture, but unfortunately in our churches as well. It's not to say that before this motto came along in 2013 as a hashtag on a social media post and then eventually became the banner of an entire movement. It's not to say that somehow there was a pristine unity in the church or in the culture before this came along. In fact, it has been noted that for decades, really centuries, Sunday remains one of the most segregated hours anywhere in America. The problem of racial separation in our culture and in our churches really goes back to the very founding of the nation. It's not to say there hasn't been progress over the last 200 plus years on a political level. Abolitionist and civil civil rights leaders fought for and, and won many achievements in the course of the history of our country. Many of those leaders, in fact, the vast majority of those leaders were Christian leaders. And the message that they had was clearly grounded in the Scripture, constructed with the language of Scripture, and the outcomes that they sought were largely aligned with Scripture. At times, they may have made demands that uh, could have arisen from motives other than the glory of God, 
And at times, their personal lives may not have always modeled the character that they preach to others, but in God's providence, by appealing to the collective conscience of a nation, uh, they tapped into a sense of morality which God himself had embedded in the conscience of every man and woman from creation. And so there was a groundswell of support to continue the work of making our nation a more perfect union. As the 21st century dawned, it was clear that to to, to many people, while we had made some progress, certainly there was still a need to continue the vision of one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Even within the church, there was still sincere efforts to strengthen bonds of unity, to train up a new generation of leaders within the church who would unite not around race or even around politics, but who would unite around the glory of God and around the clarity of the gospel. All kinds of conferences and and efforts to train up men and to even uh, integrate uh, more and more scholarship uh, minorities to bring them all together with the clarity of the truth. It's actually been one of the saddest developments within the church during my career, you might say, over the last 20 years to see all of that unravel in a very unfortunate way. I've, um, I have to confess, I mean, I've always sort of had a personal burden, um, more so in this area than some others, I've read extensively on uh, black history and issues of race within the church and have uh, yearned to see this issue sort of go by the wayside as much as I can, at least within the church, while I understand that society might be a different question. But it seems as we are headed into now the, first, uh, the end of the first quarter of this new century, it seems that there's more division between black and white Christians now than there was 20 years ago. There could be any number of explanations for that, why there is so much division. But I think that you could at least name one of them as a central, is that the modern-day movements which are attempting to deal with racism have abandoned their biblical foundations And so they can no longer appeal to the collective conscience of a people when that conscience that they're supposedly appealing to is given to them by God and responds in moral ways to God's truth. Now, we don't have time to unpack everything related to this issue today, and I fully understand that even to bring it up as a topic is to risk more hurt and more misunderstanding, and more offense. It's a challenging issue, uh, the, probably the most challenging that we've dealt with because it is a subject that, uh, that touches in such a personal way on so many people that we know and love, especially black brothers and sisters, many of them who are dear friends of mine and of yours. And we understand that there are many layers of history and personal experience that we couldn't even begin to unpack if we tried this morning. There's always a danger when you then approach something like this and you 
uh, don't have adequate time or, or don't even have uh, the full breadth of, of uh, background, there's always the uh, risk that any statement you make might be taken without the full context. But that is a danger, unfortunately, that we must face. Because the issues around this particular topic are absolutely ripping the church apart. And for the love of both Christ's church and the love of his gospel, the love of Christ himself, as well as the love of our brothers and sisters, like so many of these other issues that we've tried to deal with in the past weeks, we must uh, take it on and talk about it. The damage to the church and the danger to the gospel are too great to sit by and avoid the hard topics. I might say a number of years ago, I went to a, a, a conference, a lecture, I should say, on racism in America, and I listened to a black pastor talk on this issue, and he urged, I remember uh, near the end of his conversation, he urged all of us white brothers in the audience to make a point to listen to black brothers and sisters, the voices of black Christians. I tried to take that to heart and really invest the, the time both personally and, and uh, through other means, digitally. I tried to really invest the time listening as much as I could to uh, as many voices as I could. But what I have found, I, I have to admit, is a little surprising to me. Because what I found is that the experience of black believers, as I've heard so many of them, is as varied as the experience of white believers. Some of them have had very painful experiences of prejudiced and disrespectful treatment. Others have not. Some of them still fear uh, the mistreatment by law enforcement. Some of them do not. Some have a sense that the systems of our nation still create obstacles for minorities. Others Rejoice at the opportunities that the nation has provided for them and talk about the goodness of the Lord in that. From, from all of my sort of, uh, sort of limited and anecdotal efforts to listen and to bear the burdens of brothers and sisters, I've gotten a sense that there's no real singular experience or, or I should say no singular black experience in America these days. Or another way to say that is black experience and black culture are not one and the same. It's not so uniform among uh, brothers and sisters that I've enjoyed knowing. And so that makes it doubly difficult to address a topic like this because you always run the risk of overgeneralizing in any direction and therefore alienating or offending or misunderstanding others. With that said, I mean, we should begin, first of all, not with trying to make a whole list of acknowledgments about what experience someone may or may not have or how those might differ across the board, but we should at least begin with the absolute and um, clear statement that any form of racism should be abhorrent to all of us. It has had far too much of a role in our nation's history. It still lingers in too many pockets of our country. I have personally witnessed that in several situations and 
am fully aware that it certainly exists. I've heard about it in other situations from, um, from second and third hand accounts. And anywhere that prejudice exists, it dishonors God, it expresses human corruption and sin, and it ought to be denounced along with every other sin. And for those who have suffered through the pain and the hurt of all that, I certainly have no desire to dismiss or to deny those pains. I know for some it's been more painful than others. So where racism or prejudice still rears its ugly head, it ought to be soundly condemned by the church. But the issue that I want to take up this morning is not racism specifically. We certainly have addressed that um, numerous times as it's addressed in the scripture. But the issue that I really want to focus in on this morning is the movement that operates under the banner of Black Lives Matter. Because for some people, it is seemingly a self-evident motto, a self-evident truth. Black lives are as important as any other lives. And that our nation has a history of not recognizing or upholding that truth. And so for them, it, it is in many ways an uncontroversial uh, a statement. They really can't understand why anyone would object to the statement itself or the use of the statement or, or any of that. For others, for many white Christians, it has sounded like a blanket accusation that all white people are racist and that any of their very real Acts of kindness or love toward those who are in the minority are not appreciated and not noticed and not welcomed at the end of the day. For still others, simply associating the, the, the slogan with an entire agenda that presents itself as an attack on racism, but in fact is an attack on the very fundamental cornerstones, not only of Western civilization, but of the gospel itself is enough for them to, to resist its um, propagation. So we need clarity on this issue. And of course, the one place that's going to provide us with that clarity is God's word. And so this morning, I want to I talk about this issue. I want to ask a question of this issue. If black lives matter... Why do they matter? Because this is the real issue. To, to make the claim is important, but how and why you make the claim is equally important, as we'll see. Because to answer those questions is to bring clarity about not only the people who are making the claim, but also about what their claims mean and what their aims might be. And so this morning, I want to talk about two truths that make lives matter. Black lives, white lives, it doesn't really matter what the life is. It certainly applies to black lives. So if you ever hear someone making this claim, you could just ask yourself, are you making the claim based on these two simple truths that arise out of God's word? And as I said, that hopefully will bring clarity to those who are making the claim and clarity to how we should respond to them. So to begin with, we just can acknowledge this simple truth. First of all, that we are all created in the image of God. That's why lives matter. Lives matter because we're created in the image of God. 
Black lives are created in the image of God. White lives are created in the image of God. Asian lives, Middle Eastern lives were all created in the image of God. And this, uh, it's this fact that gives our lives significance. It's because we are created in the image of God that black lives have dignity, they have value, and they have worth. Apart from that, there is no real basis for saying that any life matters. Uh, if, if life is nothing more than the accidental arrangement of molecules or the survival of a particular fittest of species, you can't really make a credible claim that any life is more valuable than any other random living animal. You might believe that life matters, but you can't really say why it matters beyond perhaps just a statement of your own opinion. One author states it this way. She says, if we look to evolution as our only origin story and try to squeeze our ethics from its scientific husk, we have at best the idea that no one should sacrifice only for the members, I'm sure, that one should sacrifice only for the members of one's genetic group. The idea of loving those whose origins lie in a different continent is dead in the primeval water. In other words, that kind of secular, materialistic view of the world whose whole outlook and philosophy begins with nothing but humans and their own self-preservation can only get you so far. But the only way you get to the idea of a, a, a fundamental, as we said last week, an inalienable right or dignity is by looking to the Scripture, by borrowing, if you will, from its language, whether you accept it or not. Because the Bible's utterly clear on this issue. Acts 17, 26, Paul, a Jew, was speaking to Greeks in Athens and appealing to them with the gospel. And this is what he says to them, that God made from one man every nation, every ethnos is the word there, from which we obviously get ethnicity. God has made from one man every ethnicity of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwellings that they should seek God. He was explaining to them as he, as he prepares to present the gospel to them that the gospel that he's going to present is a gospel for all ethnicities, for all peoples, because all people are created by God in the image of God. They all came from one man, from, from Adam, and all of this was by God's hand. Of course, Paul was referring back to the created order in Genesis chapter 1 where we're told God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. And of course, as the story of creation unfolds, we, we see God uh, working out his plan in humanity, even at one point uh, responding to their corruption and destroying most of the peoples on the face of the earth. He preserved, of course, the family of Noah and through Noah's family, the image of God was preserved. It was actually the image of God, which is restated in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which became the foundation of the first declared human right in civilization. Genesis 9, 6 says, 
that there was to be a punishment for those who took the life of another human being because of this fundamental reality. It says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So if you were to attempt to snuff out the life of another human being, there's a fundamental dignity and right that you have violated and it's grounded in the image of God. And so we read just a few verses later there in Genesis 9, 16, the sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And so this this fundamental element of human Dignity in the image of God is grounded there in God's creation and God's plan, God's design. Every life is to be cherished. Every life is to be valued. Every life is to be protected. Every life matters because of this fundamental truth. But this raises what we might say are the initial problems with the Black Lives Matter slogan. Because many people who make that claim simultaneously hold to worldviews that exclude God. As a slogan, then, Black Lives Matter is not so much a problem for what it says. It's a problem because it says too little. It tries to say something, but it says too little. It claims that Black Lives Matter, but it doesn't really tell us why. And this is where so much of the confusion comes in. If the claim was that black lives matter to God, or if the claim was that black lives matter because they're made in the image of God, then it would clarify uh, everything. It would clarify what's being said. It would clarify the kind of solutions then that you have to seek from that. But because it attempts to make claims and build a movement without God, They are attempting to define an issue without the existence of God. They want to make a claim without justifying it in anything beyond themselves. It necessarily introduces to it all of these fundamental problems. In fact, we could cite three of them this morning. Three fundamental problems with what we might call the BLM movement. First of all, it offers no clear solutions. It doesn't offer any clear solutions. As a movement, it begins with an assumption that God doesn't exist and it ends up looking for solutions based on the same assumption. Another way to say that is because its reach is broadly throughout all of society, its strategy has been to embrace all of society's views which are essentially secular. It begins then by measuring other people based on its own claim, you either believe or you don't believe black lives matter because if you believed, you would fill in the blank. But the blank is filled in far too often with demands that arise from the same godless secular worldview on which the premise has been stated. This becomes a measuring stick for whether or not you believe black lives matter, whether or not you comply with the secular materialistic worldview that follows from it. As a movement then, black lives matter 
is uh, anti-truth and anti-gospel. It begins, I said, uh, perhaps with some of the same observations about, about hurts and pains that society has or is, is filled with, but its basis for that assumption is on the wrong things, and therefore its solution for what to do about those wrong things are more wrong things. This movement, a BLM movement, then promotes the idea fundamentally that, that society has the power within itself to save itself from itself. That's contrary to the gospel. That fundamentally undermines the gospel. The whole idea is, uh, is, uh, runs counter to what you and I are supposed to be proclaiming, that, that the world itself is groaning under a weight of corruption which can only be solved by the power of God. Second, the BLM movement offers no hope. Very similar to having no solutions. There's just no hope. The message ends up being one not full of hope, but one that's actually full of hate and anger and vindictiveness. And people feel this. It tries to highlight problems, but it has no power to fix the problems because it never addresses the root of the problems. It never deals with the issue of sin. It never deals with the issue of sin. And because it never deals with the issue of sin, the emphasis is inevitably on the problem of other people. The problem is me. Excuse me, the problem is not me. The problem is you. The focus is on everyone as victims and not on them as perpetrators. And so it doesn't generate hope. It just generates hate. It's not surprising that some people would begin to associate the movement then not as something that unites anyone, but as something that divides people further, as something that wants to further divide not only our nation, but even divide churches. And in fact, those who have been the most prominent voices in the Black Lives Movement have been explicit about their attempts to divide people. They often advocate philosophies that are grounded in humanistic secular ideas that fundamentally divide people, most notably critical theory, where the key component of it is to separate human society into various groups along racial and economic lines to make blatant generalizations about those groups and their role in either oppressing or being oppressed, and then to pit those groups against one another. It fundamentally wants to divide. And then people begin to ask, what's the end game? What's the hope in all this? How is it supposed to end? Because a movement that doesn't deal with the sin issue really cannot offer real hope. It can't offer forgiveness. It can't offer peace in any of those things. When it does talk about sins, it generally focuses on sins in the far past these days, 200 years ago, what may or may not have happened. But it begs the question, why stop there? Why not 400 years ago? Why not 800 years ago? Why not 1,000 years ago? Because if we are indeed responsible for sins of our ancestors, 
If you go back far enough, then we're all guilty. We're all guilty. We're all corrupt. We all stand in the same place under the wrath of God. And so this becomes a a real stumbling block for a lot of people. But for others, it just becomes a movement of perpetual angst and perpetual rage, perpetual anger with no real hope. The materialistic evolutionary mindset comes out in the end. This is really just a movement about every group looking out for itself. There's a third problem with this BLM movement. It opens the door to anyone's claim of any right. Because it's, because it's beginning assumption is not rights that are grounded in any transcendent ideal or in any transcendent God. If your beginning assumption is grounded in nothing but your own sense of of moral justification, if it's not grounded in the image of God and creation, if it's just this self-proclaimed authority of what's right and wrong, then literally any group can define its own rights and claim those rights are being violated on the same premise, under the same banner. If it begins with secular assumptions, it leads to secular assumptions, which is not surprising then when you read the mission statement of the official Black Lives Matter organization, and it says, quote, we affirm the lives of black, queer, and trans folks, disabled folks, folks, undocumented folks, folks with records, women, and all black lives along the gender spectrum. Our network centers those who've been marginalized within black liberation movements, end quote. So the instinct of many people as we enter into the 21st century is that this movement, which arose in 2013, and used perhaps some similar language for civil rights and and other rights movements in the past, is coming across as much more hollow and much more shallow than any of those other movements. As I said at the beginning, this is the fundamental problem, is the, the movement itself is attempting to make the same kind of broad appeals that other movements made in the past, but without the same biblical foundation or even the same biblical language. And so there is no appeal to the collective conscience of humanity, which has God's law written on its heart. And the result is that all you're left with is just intimidation and fear and censorship and bullying. The movement necessarily becomes more hateful, more angry, and more violent as time goes on. But there's a second more particular truth that you and I have to consider this morning, a truth that makes black lives matter even more, we might say. All lives matter because they've been created in the image of God, but for some, they matter more because they're actually united to the body of Christ. We are, we are, we are, we matter, we are dignified, particularly when we are a part of the body of Christ. That is to say, those who place their faith in Christ 
become his child. They're baptized into his body, the church, and that brings them under his special care and protection. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We're not saying that if you're not a Christian, your life doesn't matter. Every human life matters because it's born in the image of God, and that is, uh, that's an irreplaceable element. It is, it is with you, and, uh, and will be with you all of your life. But the scripture is equally clear that God declares a special love, a special care on those who become brothers and sisters by his blood. Paul writing to Philemon in the New Testament was sending his letter back with a man named Onesimus who actually had been a slave of Philemon. And he encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus back into his household and into his care, providing Onesimus with whatever he needs. And he writes there in Philemon verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It was actually Onesimus's new identity as a brother in Christ that made Philemon more accountable in the ways that he would treat his former slave. So you see some, someone who places their faith in Christ, they're united to Christ, they take on a new identity. They now are part of the body of Christ. They are now adopted as the sons and daughters of God. In Colossians 3, Paul writes to fellow Christians about particularly the way that we are to treat one another within the church. And he says to them here in, in Colossians 3, 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's dealing here with with divisions. And this, this actually comes right after the whole section talking about the way that we either hold grudges, the way we withhold forgiveness, the way that we talk to one another. It's, right, it's buried right in a section talking about all these other things. And so he goes right after the divisiveness in churches that often occurred in those days along religious sort of uh, uh, background, cultural background, and even along racial backgrounds. Circumcised and uncircumcised, that's a reference to the religious ceremonies that divided Jews from Gentiles and previously separated them as as peoples. But along with that, Paul says there's not Greek or Jew. Those are the racial lines that sort of mirrored those religious boundaries in the past. But then he mentions barbarians and Scythians. Barbarians are those people from outside of the Greek or the Roman culture They would have been outside of all of its, we might say, civilization, outside of its cultural advances, outside of its educational opportunities in the Roman world. They were in many ways uh, illiterate and considered bad-mannered and uncouth because they had been reared and raised outside of the Roman and Greek cultures. They had been brought up outside of its economic stability and affluence that came with all the technological advances that are well known in the Roman Empire. And the Scythians 
was really an intensification of the word barbarian. They were the most outlandish of all the barbarians. In Greek theater, Scythians were often portrayed as comical because of their utterly ridiculous behavior. They were, they were the source of mockery in culture. But Paul was, um, was compelled to remind the church that within the church, none of that stuff really is to be retained. None of that stuff is to have influence. When you are here, no matter what sort of the, the um, etiquette and the cultural um, sort of baggage that you bring into this, none of that stuff is to create any level of division. Paul was probably referring to this image in Romans 1.14 when he says of himself, he's under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to wise and to the foolish. Just in case anyone wanted to label another group in that way, wise or foolish, Paul says it doesn't matter because I have, as a, as a minister of the gospel and as a brother in Christ, I have an obligation, I have a duty, I have a bond, I have a connection, I have an identity with those brothers and sisters. So, so all barriers that may have divided the world around them and all the sort of animosity that might fuel the world around them, all the mockery, all the, all the separation, all those things that might be taking place around them that are, that are fueled by prejudice and pride and hate, you must strive in every way by your actions, by your attitudes and your habits You must strive in every way to exhibit your new identity in Christ, your oneness in Christ. Paul, of course, mentions even here that there is no longer slave or free. Those would have been divisions that were eliminated as well in Christ because slaves in those days were largely the people uh, from conquered nations or the descendants of people from conquered nations. And so there was a racial component even with that. So when you came into the church, you were thrown into a whole slew of relationships that you wouldn't perhaps have had as naturally in the world. You were fellowshipping with not only Greeks and Jews, but with Scythians and barbarians, slaves and free, things that really in the time of that world, were unthinkable. But this is precisely what the church is supposed to be. It's precisely what the church is supposed to be. This is the identity of the church. It's part of the testimony of the church. It is this this diversity of the church that is actually what celebrates and emphasizes and brings about the unity. One of the evidences of the true renewal of God in your heart taking place in the church is that it overcomes all these plagues of society. John Piper writes this, if you want, if you want the meaning and the worth and the beauty and the power of the cross of Christ to be seen and loved in our churches, if you want the design of the death of his son, it is not only to, be reconcil- it's not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile alienated ethnic groups to each other in Christ. Then, we will not 
He says, then we will display the magnitude of the cross of Christ better and more and deeper and sweeter through the ethnic diversity and unity that comes about in our life and worship. This is really where we as a church ought to be placing our emphasis. It is in what the gospel proclaims. It's in what the gospel establishes. It establishes us not just as some sort of loose conglomeration of people. It establishes us as one body. And what does the scripture say then about one body? It says that if one member hurts, we all hurt. If one member suffers, we all suffer. It generates a level of sincere concern and a sincere effort to come alongside of brothers and sisters no matter what their suffering is. And so for those within the church, when they are experiencing whatever the pains are of prejudice and, and uh, discrimination or, or mockery or any of those other things, it ought to grieve us deeply because that is someone who not only is made in the image of God, but there's someone who's a brother and sister in Christ or someone who is actually a part of God's body. It is an affront not just on them now, it's an affront on our Savior, on our Lord. For us then, all the sort of experiences of our black brothers and sisters are ours to bear as well. But our hope as we suffer together with them isn't ultimately that the solutions that uh, are needed are going to be found in this life. When we bear those burdens together with our brothers and sisters, it's not with promises that we'll go out and we'll make society right. Because we understand well that prejudice and racism, discrimination have always been a part of this corrupted world. Our hope, our solution, our answer is in the welcoming love of Christ. That He's the one who, although the world itself may not Uh, fully embrace you or some other group he's the one who embraces all people and he embraces them all equally as sinners who themselves are guilty of all kinds of wrongs but as sinners who can have forgiveness and cleansing and renewal and hope and ultimately they can have a life uh, destined for justice Uh, destined for peace, destined for glory because of the work of Christ. So the issue with BLM, the issue with Black Lives Matter, as I said, is not so much what it says. It says says too little. It, it, It sort of is a door that opens up into a black chasm that is filled with everything that is not of God. But the message we proclaim is the message of the gospel. And it's a door that opens up not to hopelessness and not to further frustration and anger. It's a door that opens up to true peace and to true lasting unity through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we know that these issues are so much more complex than, than we can even deal with here this morning because the human heart in all of its sinful ways is scheming and corrupt. 
And there must always then be a vigilance on our part that we would guard ourselves against it, whether it is on one hand the blatant corruptions of prejudice and pride or whether it is on the other hand the subtle slogans that would draw us in to a pathway and a a suggested solution that are built on something other than you. For that very reason, we commit ourselves to the truth of your gospel. And we rejoice that it has broken down all the barriers. We rejoice that we can come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, our black brothers and sisters, Asian, any minority who is represented among us. We rejoice that we have come to know love because of Christ when we can express that love in every way for one another, affirming the new work that has been born in their hearts as it's been born in ours and bringing us together as one through our Savior. I pray for our church that no matter what's going on in the world around us, that we would long for that to be expressed to be expressed in the most visible and affirming and compelling ways. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.